And I think one of the main differences is that with a traditional infrastructure that is centralized is that it's it's mutable. It, it also is uh, often private and you often, for the most part, don't have control over like what is actually happening unless you are the one managing that infrastructure. Um, with, with Lens, you are taking advantage of this, you know, Web3 idea of permanence, immutability, public data, public infrastructure. So just like if someone deploys a smart contract, anyone in the world can build a front end to interact with that, then uh, you could consider Lens a, you know, similar technology on the back end where anyone can build a front end and uh, we're all sharing that same backend infrastructure and data. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. So today's guest is, I think, our first ever repeat guest in the show. We have back for a round number two, Nader Dobbitt, the Director of Developer Relations at Ave. So in the last episode we recorded with Nader, we went pretty deep into some more general topics, right? So things like developer relations, building developer communities, how uh, Nader thinks about his own developer career and the developer careers of people just starting out. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, but this time we decided to focus on a very specific topic and that topic is Lens Protocol. So, le so Lens is, is something that's been in the works for a while. Nader's been pretty focused on its uh, throughout the last, I think, several months to several quarters, along with the rest of the Lens team. And we took this as an opportunity to deep dive both what Lens is working on and also how they're thinking through solving some of the technical challenges they, they have in front of them, right? Building a very powerful and important primitive for the space. So we went pretty deep into things like the entire Lens, I guess, tool chain, right? So how they've thought about building the Lens API, the Lens developer experience and SDKs, what are Lens modules, how does Lens actually work, what what kind of transactions are actually being executed when I post something on Lens or when I, I publish something with my Lens profile. And they were all very interesting questions to go into because you know there are things that I didn't necessarily know a ton about. And uh, I think that you, the listener, if you're interested in building products on top of Lens, this conversation will probably be pretty useful for you. We also talked through things like how Lens is approaching the challenges they might face with scalability, right? It sounds like they have some interesting developments in the work there. Uh, Nader teased a few things as we hear in this episode, but he didn't necessarily reveal everything. So it sounds like there will be some cool announcements coming out soon, and you can skip to those parts of the episode if those are hot button issues for you. And then finally, we talked through the kind of skill sets you need and the kind of opportunities there are for building on top of Lens. Right, so it sounds like if you want to just get started building something like Orb or Lenster, there's a lot of tooling there that you can just use out of the box without having to be a full-blown Web 2 and Web 3 developer expert to get started. However, it does sound like some of the, the tooling that the Lens team has built and maybe some of the more advanced futuristic applications that you might want to build on top of Lens could require a pretty advanced hybrid skill set of maybe some Web2 stuff, like you know the Postgres setup, for example, that we talked through uh, in the Lens API, and just the standard Web3 skill sets, especially around data. So yeah, this is a fascinating conversation for me. I think you'll probably learn a lot, especially if you're curious about these problems. We did, for the record, you know, just staying with the zeitgeist, we did 
touch on how some AI and ML new tooling might be really useful for building applications on top of Lens. So uh, if you're looking to scratch your AI itch, uh, we touch on that a little bit in this episode too. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from Superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof of concept Superfluid StarkNet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. All right, we are here today with Nader. Nader, this is round two for you on the podcast. You're actually our first ever uh, two-time guest. So uh, I guess congratulations and welcome back. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here as, as always, as before. <laughs> Wonderful. So this episode is going to be dedicated to Lens. We're going to go very deep into Lens from the perspective of a developer. Um, but before we do that, for those of you listeners who maybe are living under a rock and aren't necessarily aware of what Lens is in Web3, uh, Nader, can you just give us like a brief overview of like what Lens is and why it exists before we dive much deeper? Yeah, so Lens is a protocol and a suite of like APIs and tools for developers to build social applications and to build social features into applications. I think the main difference between what Lens is versus what people typically think of when they think of a social network. I would say one of the main things really, because there are quite a few differences, but one of the main things is that it's it's not the actual UI layer. It's not the application layer. It's really more of the infrastructure and backend. And the way that I would kind of compare it to, if you're a developer, you may have used managed services like Twilio for messaging or Auth0 for authentication, or even serverless functions for executing business logic. These are all managed services that allow you to kind of abstract away a lot of types of infrastructure that you would often build from scratch back in the day, but now you don't have to do that. And you can then more quickly and easily build high quality front end applications. So it kind of abstracts away a lot of the back end stuff for building a social app. And then you can focus on building your front end. And therefore, there are dozens of, of high quality lens applications that are of different names that they're not typically like a like lens isn't the name the the main focus of the app it's just kind of what the app is using so a good example of this is orb which is a mobile app that is built on lens and you if you weren't familiar with lens you might not even know you're using lens it's just the way that they've built the app and um therefore you know this type of infrastructure just makes it very simple for a developer to build out um 
a high quality application more quickly and with less resources because they don't have to deal with the back end uh, part. I love it. That's a, I think a really succinct and good explanation. Um, we're going to get back into some of the developer tooling you've built in a bit, right? And how easy you've kind of made it to build some of th- these things, whether it's a mobile app or a standard web app, like I guess social, social network, right? But before we do that, I mean, a lot of people listening, they might have uh, Lens profile NFTs, they might participate on Lens, they might use Orb or even, th- even things like Lenster. And the striking thing about it is that the experiences that those teams have built are actually like, like pretty high quality for being very early stage apps, right? When I'm using Orb, it feels a lot like Twitter, right? However, I think the one thing that a lot of people might wonder, especially from the developer's perspective, is like what's actually happening under the hood here, right? It's amazing to post something on Orb and then also see it on Lenster and vice versa, right? Because the, the backend here is open. But like as someone who knows Solidity and a lot of our listeners know Solidity and, and how blockchains work, what's actually going on under the hood, right? So if I create a post on Orb, right? What What is happening, right? What, what transactions are being made uh, what what data is moving around? Can, can you walk us through that, maybe step by step? Sure. I think that just to kind of start the conversation and, and provide uh, a, a very base level for this conversation is to kind of think about how the value proposition of blockchains and Web3 translates into the way developers build applications versus the way they would typically build an application with this uh, centralized type of infrastructure. And I think one of the main differences is that with a traditional infrastructure that is centralized is that it's it's mutable. It, it also is uh, often private. And you often, for the most part, don't have control over like what is actually happening unless you are the one managing that infrastructure. So for example, if you want to build an application on top of Twitter's API, they offer you a very limited subset of what they actually use for their own app. And on top of that, they keep changing it all the time and, and they can shut things off if, if they feel like it. And, and you, you might have to pay more one day than they do the day before because they decide to raise their prices, et cetera, et cetera. Because like that, that infrastructure can go away at any time also. Like let's say someone deletes uh, a feature, you know, you just don't have that anymore. Um, with with Lens, you are taking advantage of this, you know, Web3 idea of permanence, immutability, public data, public infrastructure. So just like if someone deploys a smart contract, anyone in the world can build a front end to interact with that, then uh, you could consider Lens a, you know, similar technology on the back end where anyone can build a front end and uh, we're all sharing that same backend infrastructure and data. So if if I build an application on top of Lens and I onboard a thousand users, then those thousand users can then go forward and use any other application in the ecosystem and still have those one thousand uh, or X number of followers that each one of those users has. So a good example of like why this is important to a lot of people is that um, you know right now TikTok has blown up in the last couple of years. But let's say that you built up 100,000 or a million followers on YouTube. You now have to kind of start over on TikTok and build that from scratch. And now they're talking about shutting uh, TikTok down uh, in the U.S. or, or certain countries because of, of whatever you know reasons. Those people are now going to lose that social graph that they've spent you know the last few years building up as well. Um, but with Lens, you build up 
a following and that following, uh, well, first of all, is there forever because it's, it is built on a immutable censorship resistant infrastructure, but also it follows you around to all of these new apps that, that come out on a daily or a weekly basis. So if you are a Twitter, you know, hyper, I would say power user, you might use something like Linster or Orb and build up your following there. But let's say a new type of application comes out a year later um, and you've built up 100,000 followers. You don't have to start from scratch to start taking advantage of, oh, I'm going to start doing like this short form video on this like TikTok type of app. Or things are going to come out that we can't really even imagine. And you can immediately have all those followers. And, and that's a very big value proposition to a lot of people. Like, you know, that's kind of one of the main reasons that people would consider using uh, this type of uh, or, or at least getting involved in building their following up just to have it there just in case, as opposed to using, uh, focusing all of their time maybe on another type of uh, social uh, infrastructure. I love it. Yeah, that's that's a great way to to set the stage, I think. And, and you actually had a good tweet. I think you tweeted this, but the powerful thing here is that you really have to build your following once and it stays with you forever, at, at least in the context of applications that are also built on top of Lens, right? That's a really powerful thing. Yeah. And if we were talking about this in 2015, and people might roll their eyes and be like, yeah, okay, like under what circumstances am I going to really need to own my own social graph? It might be nice in theory, but uh, Perfect Storm uh, has kind of just dropped for Web3 social media, right? With the Twitter madness and the TikTok situation, like you said. So I think, you know, this might be uh, a, a series of moments perhaps that... Uh, lead people to things like Lens and lead developers to be interested in building on top of Lens. But a little more tactically, right? So I think the explanation of, of the high level and the why is, is clear for people. But what, like, where is this? So again, we, we talked about, you mentioned immutability, right? Permanence, interoperability, right? These things are like kind of like Web3 development principles. Um, where... Like, let's say, for example, I publish something on Orb, right? Where does that content live? Like, how is it able to be resurfaced by Lenster? Like, like how is this actually working under the hood as, as a dev? Um, that's a good question. So when, you know, any transaction is made, as of today, the current version of the infrastructure, it's, it's basically a transaction on Polygon. And um, if you think about the way that most applications are built on top of blockchains, it's a lot different than a traditional type of application because most applications in the web two quote unquote world just use a database and you store things in a database, you update things and you delete things. And databases are great because they've been optimized over the last 30 or 40 years to do data retrieval and data querying in a very uh, efficient and performant way. So you can actually go to a database and you can say, give me all the users that have signed up in the last 24 hours whose name starts with the letter D that live in this city and who are female or male or whatever. You get like you can do all these really complex, complex queries and that information comes back immediately. But with the blockchain, it's not like that at all. Instead, transactions are made over a period of time as updates to the current state of that that uh, network smart contract or whatever. And you can't just go and get a historical like query. You can't do a lot of things that you would probably want to do in most real-world applications because really, instead of thinking about it as like a state machine, it's, it's, there is going to be some state there, but, but also a lot of the value is, is in the, uh, the history of the transactions that have happened 
and being able to kind of like tally those up together and have that information is very, very important. So what you typically see applications do to kind of get around that is to build out their own databases. And, and what they end up doing is like just taking the history of everything that's happened and storing it in a database. And then they make that database queryable. And that is often how you get a high quality performant uh, application in the Web3 world um, using blockchain data. Now, the problem with that is that it's actually very complex to do that because you have to not only be just a typical like blockchain engineer and understand front end, you also have to now understand how to, you know, scrape over all of that information, store it properly in the database and like make it queryable in different ways. So the barrier to entry to like building a high quality app is somewhat complex uh, when you take all of these things into consideration. So what we've done to kind of make this a lot easier, and you can also use other tools out there, by the way, like the graph protocol is a great example of an indexer that uh, allows you to kind of like index information and make it queryable. Um, what we've done, though, is we've built out our own API that literally tries to take into consideration all of these different types of queries that you would need to build a mobile app or a web app using social data and make that available to you without you having to do any work. So a good example of what this might look like in practice is if you go to Twitter, um, there's a million different ways that you can query data from Twitter because you can go to your profile and see like a feed of information or you can you can have different types of feeds. I think now they give you following and then recommended. You can also go to someone else's profile and see their feed of posts. You can go see who they're following. You know, there's like a million different ways that this data is retrieved. So we've tried to build out those same types of queries for developers to use easily. So you can go to our API documentation and you can see that you can get recommendation algorithms for publications. You can query based on, um, you know, different types of uh, filters and arguments. You can, you can query you can do search, you know, you can do all types of stuff. So we've basically taken all of this data that's, you know, been built up historically over time on the on the protocol, and we've built out an API layer on top of it so developers can just really easily just build applications using this information. Nice. Yeah. So this is interesting. So, so we, yeah, we're basically storing in a database with a nice API on top of it. Nice. Okay. That was going to be my follow-up question is like, where are you getting the data? But okay, this opens up a, a lot of interesting potential side rabbit holes we can go down. And I'm going to ask a follow-up question specifically on the Lens API and these kind of like bridges between what's probably just Postgres databases and blockchains in, in a second. But okay, but let's go back into the the, the published the publish post one more time. Okay, so I, I execute a transaction. What does that transaction contain? Like, let's just say I have, we'll keep it relatively simple. I'll ask about maybe like multimedia stuff in a bit, but like, let's just say it's like, Literally just like two sentences. You know, I've got a, a spicy take. I want to put it out there. Right? I want it to be permanent and out there forever. Uh, I post it on Orb. What is contained in that transaction on Polygon? Yeah, so you'll have a couple of different things. You'll have like the profile ID of the user that posted that publication or that, that update. And that could be a comment. It could be a, a video. It could be whatever. You'll also have a content URI, which is just a link to the metadata that has all the information. So when you think of an NFT, uh, an NFT is really just a combination of a token ID, a base content URI, and a, um, I think that's kind of the main two things actually. And using that content URI and that token ID, you can then retrieve metadata 
often from like IPFS or, or Rweave or something like that. So it's kind of similar to that where we store the, the profile ID, we store the content URI, and that has like literally everything that you would need because the content URI then contains all of that that uh, rich content that that might contain like uh, uh, a good example of this might be a content field that would be maybe like the text, a description, uh, an image. You might have tags that make it easier to filter. You might have uh, an app ID for other more filtering. So there's all types of different data that can be stored in this content URI. And when that when that publication hits um, the smart contract, we then take that IPFS or that Rweave URI and we retrieve the metadata off of that. And then we store that metadata in the database and, and also index that and make it queryable. Um, because like, there's not a lot you can just do with that content URI if you're just building an app. You need to know that information that's part of that content URI. So um, that way you can say, I want to search by the word lens or something like that or, or, um, you know, or whatever thing you want to search for. And we'll make that available by essentially taking the data out of the content URI and indexing it. Gotcha. And then how, like, so how is, how do you determine like where the content URI, like, like what that points to, right? Is it, I know you're pretty involved in the Rweave ecosystem. Like, is it, is it Rweave usually, is it just literally just an IPFS link? Like how, how is it determined where, where that's actually stored? Yeah. Devs have the option of using either Rweave or IPFS and bundler. Gotcha. Okay, cool. And then, so we, we see a little bit of uh, we see a, a uh, you know a fair amount of each. Actually. Okay, cool. And then I'm assuming you know when it comes to other multimedia, right? Like if I post a video, like if I were to take the entire video from this podcast and and publish it there, I'm assuming that's also just going to be stored on our weave as well, or, or IPFS if I want it to be. Yeah, it's up to again. That would be up to you. The the actual content itself is going to be part of that content URI. And then um, it's up to the user. Do you want to upload to Rweave? So if you use something like LensTube, for example, which is kind of like a video platform on Lens, you can choose either Rweave or IPFS when you're uploading your video. Interesting. Okay. So I think that makes sense, right? We're interacting with NFTs, right? NFTs have content URIs. Makes sense, right? So is each is each post then an NFT in and of itself, or am I writing, am I just executing a transaction on the profile NFT? Like, am I calling a function on the profile NFT each time I create a post? So um, pu publications, co comments, uh, and all that are not NFTs, but what the protocol enables is for someone to collect any of these, which then basically mints them as an NFT. So that's kind of the main, um, you know, difference between just having everything be an NFT versus being able to kind of um, add monetization features that that typically are not are, are not just possible with traditional infrastructure, because with uh, these types of you know possibilities, we're seeing people what you kind of like taking a step back. The way this actually works in practice is that we have this uh, collect module, which are as one of a few different types of modules that are part of what the protocol is and the collect module allows people to define rules around what it means for someone to collect a specific publication so most of the time you'll just post something and you won't have any uh collect module really you know uh, for for the average thing like oh i'm going to like 
out to eat tonight? Like, what are some good ideas? You know, just whatever, just like social type of stuff. But let's say that you wanted to monetize a piece of content or something like that. The collect module would allow you to define the rules that would kind of be there. So you could say, it's going to be $2 to collect this. You have to have at least 500 followers or you have to be following me, or you have to be following one of my friends, or I'm going to only let 50 people collect this, or, you know, whatever. You could set any types of, like, logic there. You could even kind of say every time someone collects this, the price goes up by 25%. I don't know. Um, but there's there's all types of stuff you could do there, which then makes it very, uh, I would say, it, it gives people a lot of options for creativity. It would almost be like if Twitter allowed me to send pull requests and make updates for, for like, my own um, app for, for me to just do whatever I want. But obviously Twitter doesn't do that, but it would be cool if they did. So that's kind of what Lens does. That's really cool. I think it's going to open up a lot of interesting new monetization models as well beyond uh, ads and uh, premium subscriber models, right? So I think I think it's going to get really interesting. Um, so you mentioned some of the customizability bits, right? It's like, it's very different to build on top of Lens than it is to build on top of the Twitter API as we've kind of discussed. But one of the things you can do that I think as a developer is interesting are you can build new modules, right? Uh, what are modules? And I'll ask a couple of follow-up questions after you, you define them. Yeah, sure. So modules are just smart contracts that allow you to define custom functionality for posting, following, uh, I'm sorry, for collecting or following. That's kind of the main two, two use cases there. So again, going back to collecting, which I had kind of talked about earlier, uh, when you think of like an NFT or something, you often think of these very expensive items that are out of the reach for for the majority of people in the world that are kind of just, you know, not taken too seriously, I, I would say, by, that, by the average person that's not in crypto and Web3 because of that. But when you think about a social network at scale, you can kind of start maybe rethinking the value proposition for these types of collectible items or or the monetization within a an application maybe a little bit differently. And a good example of this is we have someone who is uh, creating and, and was one of the creators of one of the first user interfaces uh, on Lens. And this was kind of like their part-time job or whatever they were doing in their free time. But it became really popular and they and they decided, hey, I'm, I want to quit my job and like work full-time on, on building out this UI. Um, and what they did was they posted just that on Lens. They said, hey, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to work full-time on building out this front end on Lens. Um, I'm going to set a collect fee of like $2. If you want to support me, you know, please collect this. And for the average person, if I'm using an app for like a few months and the person that created it is asking me for $2, like it's not that much. So, so like, you know, I'm pretty, you know, likely to to give that. And, and it turned out there was a lot of other people that thought that way as well. And I, I think the last time I checked, he collected over 14,000 individual collects, which equals over, you know, 28,000 or almost $30,000. And he made that much literally in like a a two minute tweet. He just like wrote that out, set the collect fee as $2, boom, sent it out. And he was able to monetize, uh, you know, enough money for a lot of people to live off of like for a couple of months. And you just can't do that really at all, actually, in, in, in Web2 social. Um, and every time someone clicked collect, that money went directly into his wallet too. That's pretty cool. You know, that's part of how blockchain technologies make 
seamless payments possible in a way that just haven't been in the past. Um, anyone in the world can just click that button and, and send that payment. No middleman, no like, you know, signing up, taking my email address and my phone number and my my name and all that shit. You know, it's pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I also like the models around like mirroring and different hooks that can run when somebody mirrors something, right? Like you mentioned uh, someone like uh, you, you kind of just threw this in there as like a, a side feature, but like imagine you, you could set like a couple of requirements on collecting such as someone has over a certain number of followers, right? You could, you could do kind of interesting, uh, like super web three native marketing models here too, as more people get on, get on lens. So these are all things that I think I'm, I'm pretty excited about. I've, I've met some people that have actually started entire companies and, and try to raise money on the backs of like interesting lens ideas and lens modules. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic here. Yeah, a really good example of this in practice is one of the most successful protocols that's built on Lens in the last, and it just has only been out for a few months now, is Waves. And Waves basically allows you to attach um, a value to a share, or, or in our case, a mirror. So it's it's kind of like a really, really powerful and effective way to to market yourself or market an idea. And and what I did as an experiment was I set a hundred dollar collect, I'm sorry, a $100 um, budget for a, a tweet or a post. And I said, uh, you have to have at least, I don't know, X number of followers, and you have to be following me. But if you do, then um, if you share this, you will receive like 50 cents or 0.5 of uh, whatever. It wasn't a lot. But I mean, for someone to just be able to click a button and get that money, it's, it's you know, it's a pretty much a no brainer. I mean, I do it. I don't really need that 50 cents, but like it takes like two seconds to do. But what ended up happening was like I, I reached, you know, thousands and thousands of people, but and I got hundreds of new followers because in order to actually get that money, you had to be following me. So you can add like stuff like that. And if you think about the marketing budgets that people have out there and the return on their investment that they get, it's actually not a lot when you think about traditional paid advertising like Google um, and stuff like that. And also when you think about how challenging it is and how resource intensive it is to go on social media, find an influencer, negotiate a contract with them, pay them. And then like, you know, it's just a lot of work. But what if you could say someone has a thousand followers and they are maybe, I don't know, doing this, this and that, then I will pay them a hundred dollars to retweet this. And you could program that in on uh, like in five seconds. And and there you go. You have everything ready. And, and another good example of this Let's say you want to reach a million people, right? Well, what if you had a budget of a thousand, a thousand dollars or so, and you want to reach a million people? What you could say is like, I want to give a um, thousand people that have at least a thousand followers a dollar to share this this post, and there, boom, you have literally um, have actually accomplished that within the protocol. And a thousand dollars budget for a million reaches isn't a lot. So, I mean, you can basically think about doing that type of stuff. And, and we've even seen people like have effective campaigns for 10 cents. Like when, when I say 10 cents, 10 cents per share. So, See, yeah, this, this is going to get really interesting. I mean, Lens at something approximating like a Twitter level of scale would be really, like things would get really weird really fast. I think, and I think in a good way. Um, yeah, this is, yeah this, is, this is really interesting stuff. And I, I'll come back a little bit to this sort of area of things and monetization maybe in, in a bit. Uh, 
when we talk about like front ends and like how someone would approach building a front end. But, you know, I, I just mentioned, I just threw out there, right? I just threw out there kind of flippantly, like lens at Twitter scale, right? And that's, uh, you know, that's, I should maybe take that so, so uh, lightly, right? At, at what, and this is a question I think a lot of people maybe wonder when seeing this from afar, right? I think somebody tried to pitch Elon on doing like a blockchain Twitter thing. And he was like, it's not going to work just in terms of like the scalability. Like there's just no way to make Twitter a, a full, full-blown like blockchain-based application. There may be other reasons why they can't just pivot as easily as an early stage company could. But at what point does Lens run into scalability problems? Like, like how are you and the team thinking about this? We absolutely are focused on on growing to Twitter scale and beyond. Um, that's kind of definitely our our goal and our focus. And we realized early on that building everything on chain, you know, from the perspective of just physics, you know, uh, in the current state of all these blockchains, just doesn't work. Like you literally have to. And, and I'm a huge fan of Polygon. I'm a huge fan of Solana. I'm a huge fan of a lot of different chains. And I believe that everyone is having their own very um, intuitive approach at scalability, and they're all great. But just coming down to numbers, Solana, a few thousand transactions per second is kind of like what they've been able to reach so far. Um, Polygon, I, th I believe, if I'm not mistaken, a few hundred transactions per second before you start seeing network issues. Um, and if you look at a application that is quote-unquote Web2, you know, the scale is just so much larger in, in, in these situations. And that's kind of where we're trying to get. So a good example of this, um, if you want to kind of take it to the very, very max, would be something like Amazon.com, who during the busiest times of the year, process 100 million operations per second, 100 million on a single application that isn't shared with anyone else. And when the reason I say, I point that out is that these blockchains are not just for us. They're actually shared between thousands of other apps. So we're all sharing this resource um, that is, you know, limited because we're all building upon it. It would be one thing if if we had full control over a single Solana, like Solana was just for us, we would still only be able to do 5,000 transactions per second. But it's not just us, it's us and thousands of other applications are, are building on Solana. I mean, not we're not on Solana, but, you know, in, in theory, like, you know, uh, if we were there, but we're not, we're on Polygon and we're also there with thousands of other applications. And, you know, just to be sh straight up, like it's obviously not going to scale if we want to get to 50, 100,000 transactions per second, which is where we would like to be uh, as soon as possible. So we obviously realized this early on and what we've been working on since 2022, which is yeah, last year, is a, a new and improved infrastructure that still relies on Polygon to some extent, but allows us to scale like immediately over the last few months, we've been testing it closer to 55,000 transactions per second, which is a thousand times more scalable than our current infrastructure is. And we're, we're focused on getting closer to 100,000 transactions per second by the end of the year. This new infrastructure is going to be rolling out uh, in the next couple of weeks, actually. So um, it's something that it's, it isn't theoretical. It's been tested for the last few months, and we're really excited about it. Now, I can't go into the details uh, uh, exactly of, of what it is, because it's very kind of like private at this moment. But it's in the same vein as 
or I would say spirit maybe is something like how we see different blockchains experimenting with like data availability and, and rollups and things like that. So, you know, we're still working with decentralized tech. It's still public. It's still immutable infrastructure, but it might not need to be all on the type of blockchain that needs to come to consensus for every single like minute transaction, which adds uh, an order of magnitude of complexity and cost and everything. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I've been doing a lot of reading myself, and this has been a focus of the podcast as well, and understanding this whole modular blockchains thesis. Um, how related is what? I mean, I guess that data availability is one thing that like people at like Celestia and Fuel talk about as well. How how are those are those principles involved in some of the design decisions you've been making? Like, like how does your knowledge, yes, and absolutely. you have a lot of knowledge about this, right? You, you know, a lot of people in those, in those ecosystems, how does, how does this thesis of modular blockchains play into what you guys are trying to do without revealing all of the the things you're, you're about to release? Yeah, it's basically a modular architecture and our modular infrastructure is what we've, what we've built. And we've taken inspiration from a lot of the different things that people are, uh, you know, writing papers about and talking about and, and actually doing in practice. And it's it's different, but it, it takes a lot of, um, of the similar approaches and ideas and experiments that you've kind of seen out there. And, um, you know, realizing that if we want to get to, to the place that we want to get to, we're, we're going to have to kind of build something from scratch, something new. And we're going to take advantage of all the things that are out there. But but the implementation that we've done is actually completely uh, new. And give all the credit, by the way, to the engineering team um, at, at Lens, who, like, I am not a part of. I'm just, like, a developer advocate, like, talking about this stuff. So huge props to Josh and the entire engineering team. They're doing, like, amazing work. So I love it. Huge props to, to you, Josh, and the whole Lens engineering team. I'm very excited for this one. Um, so... Okay, th that that's all good to know. So I think what's interesting though, going back to the Lens API, I told you we're gonna go back here. Um, so the Lens API, to build the Lens API, what your team had to have was some combination of skill sets, right? It was understanding of how blockchains work, right? All this stuff around blockchains, like actually getting data from blockchains, uh, probably things like the graph, understanding like how you admit an event and index and all that good stuff. And at the same time, you guys had to know how to basically bridge this information that's happening on chain into what's like effectively like a Postgres database that just kind of like follows everything that happens, right? That makes it so that you can kind of cache everything that's happening on chain inside this database that then exposes an API to developers such that they can just very easily get this data. Um, do you expect that people building, like let's say that someone's out there, they're listening, they're like, you know what? Orb is amazing, but I want to build my own Orb for X, right? I want to build my own new application on top of Lens. How, like, what kind of skill sets should they have? Should they have like this this collection of skill sets that come from like this traditional databases world? Uh, like, 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 what kind of team should they be trying to build technically before taking on this challenge? Really, just a front end team. All you have to be is a front end developer. Uh, understand how to build a React app or a Vue app or an Angular app or even a React Native app or whatever, like that. That's that's the thing. Like we've really tried to abstract away all of that backend infrastructure. It's extremely complex what is happening under the hood, but it's it's kind of something that people just don't have to worry about themselves anyway because we're uh, always optimizing and speeding up 
our uh, our backend, making it better, uh, giving more of a broad API access for different selection sets and different queries and stuff like that. And, and also building out SDKs, libraries, and tools for developers to make it a lot easier for them to build front-end applications. So a good example of this is uh, just kind of reviewing some of the different things that, that are out there. We have the React Native Lens UI Kit, which is a mobile uh, SDK. We have React Hooks Library, which is a, a web a SDK type of thing for building uh, web apps. We have a widgets library, which allows for easy integrations with just a couple of lines of code. And at the last ETH Denver Hackathon, uh, two of the top three winners were using React Native Lens UI Kit in their applications. And it allowed them to kind of build out a very high quality mobile app in a very short amount of time because they weren't writing a lot of this boilerplate code from scratch. They were just able to take components like a profile or a publication or a whatever, and just uh, then extend that with their own custom like functionality and features. Interesting. And then, and how do you think about like the, the ret, like this entire tool chain, right? So you guys have done a, a bunch of amazing work on like, I think your docs are excellent. Like we try to take inspiration from your docs. It's super fluid. Like, like we kind of studied them sometimes, right? Like you guys have done a really good job on making the developer experience, I think a high quality one. How do you think about this this tool chain in terms of like dis, the decentralization though? Like 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 we've kind of talked about building a web two social network app is really really hard. Um, what you guys have done is a lot of work with this API, making sure that people can just basically you know hit an endpoint and get the data that they want. But at some point, you know on you know on a five year ten year time scale, you know if I think and again this is what people would probably say. There's a chance that this stuff could again kind of re-centralize around a, a bunch of Web2 style products that might just lead us back into a similar place that we are now, with the caveat that like, yes, things will still be on chain. But like, how do you see the progressive decentralization of things like what you guys have built with the lens API and even other tooling that people have built as well? Like there's all kinds of stuff in Web2 that people use, like CDNs and and all, all this stuff, right? Like how how do you see this this world? Uh, throughout the next five, 10 years or so? Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. First of all, the, the, main, the main difference is that, yes, the API is there, and yes, most people are going to use the API to build their apps, but underlying the API is, is this permanent, immutable, decentralized protocols that everything is built on now and will always continue to build on, even with the new infrastructure, um, that no one can really change or, or do anything with. And I think the main difference between the way we think about, I would say, traditional infrastructure versus maybe the current state of blockchain applications versus what Lens is kind of bringing to the table is that there will be multiple different APIs that people are going to run on top of, uh, of Lens. We're open sourcing our API. We have the API that we maintain. And then there's also tools like the Graph who in the future will be supporting uh, Polygon and the decentralized network to give people more of a, like a verifiable data set that uh, people could use if they want to kind of have a strict Web3 backend. So I think between those, yeah, you then have four options. You have the protocol itself, you have our API, you have the, the graph, and then you have other people's APIs that they're going to be maintaining. And from there, you really have really full control over what you want to hook into. And I think at the client, the applications running will probably just buy into one or the other of these different API endpoints. I'm sorry, uh, these APIs. But what might be kind of cool is if 
the API allowed, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, if the application allowed the user to choose which API to where their data come from, because let's say that you disagree with the person running the Lens API because we've censored something that you don't think should have been censored. That doesn't mean you still can't surface that information in another uh, application just by buying into a different API. So um, that's kind of the main difference. You have censorship resistance at the protocol level, but you can't guarantee that at the app level or the API level because there are things that need to be removed, like harmful images and information that, uh, like, I would say mainly around images. But, you know, you don't want to show certain things, obviously, to to, to people that is uh, illegal or, or things like that. So, Yep. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating answer. And I think this gets into another important thing around, like, front ends and you know, how maybe front ends should start thinking about this stuff for the long term, right? People that want to build like high quality social networks on top of lens, like this is a, these are long term plays, right? Like these are potentially extremely valuable applications that can impact a lot of people in the world. And I think if you're, cons- if you're out there, you're listening to this, considering building a lens, a lens based application, you should be thinking about these kinds of problems, right? So like, have you guys had early conversations with people in the lens community or like, like, how are people thinking about these front ends when it comes to things like content moderation or using AI to like, I mean, all the AI tooling right now is amazing, right? You can do things like semantic search. You can build your own algorithms pretty easily now. Like how do you, how is the, the community of builders thinking about this stuff? Do you have any high level best practices or initial thoughts for them? Yeah, so this is this has been a big focus for us, not only internally but with our own grants programs and stuff, is um, getting different recommendation algorithms built, working on civil resistance, working on quality control around bots and, and bot detection and stuff like that. So we have our own internal data science team that's building out different um, things and different recommendation algorithms that we are going to continue to kind of like expose directly through our API. But we're also working with uh, teams that were either helping, you know, in the development process and they're raising their own money or even offering grants to certain teams that are building out their own like uh, recommendation algorithms. And almost all of them are using some type of AI uh, machine learning techniques and stuff like that. Uh, a good example is uh, this team called uh, Eigentrust. Um, the team is very, very technical, Harvard. Uh, co-founder of uh, of the Harmony blockchain as well, or like on that team, a bunch of really technical people. And their focus and their their big bet is on Web3 social. So they're basically helping build out recommendation algorithms and and uh, spam and bot detection and things like that on uh, Web3 social networks like, uh, like Lens. And we're working closely with them, uh, hoping to support them as well. And what they're going to probably end up doing is kind of making their own proprietary like API endpoints that developers can use for free uh, to a certain extent, and then they might have like a paid tier. Um, or maybe we'll find a way to integrate th- with them ourselves if we can find something. I, we don't know how that relationship's going to look yet because it's still fairly early, but they already have a very high-quality working product. We met with them at ETH Denver. Um, they, they've been thinking about and working on this for a, a long time. Actually, this isn't something they've just started uh, working on or anything like that. Interesting. Yeah, what's, what's cool about this is I think we're going to see you know, provided you guys are able to, you know, the scaling all works and stuff, we're going to see a globally competitive market for front ends, right? We're like, it's not just five teams in San Francisco that have the opportunity to innovate on recommendation algorithms who also get to determine like how content moderation works. 
I mean, this is this is going to be an interesting world where literally anybody anywhere in the world can build their own front end and their own uh, recommendation algorithm, set of recommendation algorithms, their own uh, concept moderation tools and systems. I, it, this is going to be super interesting. So I'm excited for teams like Eigentrust and, and others um, to, to continue building. Yeah, it really lowers the barrier to entry for developers being able to build the type of application that would compete that were just out of the... It was kind of out of the the limits for the average developer in the past because you needed a backend engineer, you needed DevOps and QA, and you needed to pay for that infrastructure. You needed to understand how to do a lot of stuff like authentication and, and all these things. And um, it was quite a bit of work, you know, and therefore you would need a, a team of like, let's say three to five engineers. And, you know, at the current cost of engineering, you know, just manpower or whatever you would call that, it's like a million dollars a year just to just to build. But now we're seeing individual developers come out of the woodwork, building out high quality apps on their own, like a team of one. And that's very powerful because that allows a lot of experimentation. So you now have people being able to kind of come up with ideas and all you need is one killer app actually on, on a protocol, right? Because if you have one killer app, you now have that ecosystem of, of users who will then trickle over and make it even more of a value proposition to build. And it kind of builds a snowball effect. And we're already seeing that even in closed beta because we have 100x thousand users. And as a developer, I don't want to build everything from scratch. I don't want to build my user base from scratch. If I can tap into this massive ecosystem, it's, uh, it's, it's just another value prop for developers to build there. And I think once we get out of closed beta, it will be even more so because then you'll be able to just use the protocol as an infrastructure layer truly. Like you never even have to mention to them like they're using Lens because at th that point, it's just going to be a way for them to sign up. It's just going to be where their data lives. And you can only surface that information on your own app to your users if you choose to. So. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be so interesting, right? It's gonna be really interesting. It's gonna break a lot of people's assumptions around network effects too, right? Because like the real network effect might like like the benefits of the network effect might just accrue to like everything that builds on Lens, right? Like like we've never had a situation before where somebody could build somebody could effectively like fork Facebook, right? And like not just like fork exactly. the UI, but like fork fork it and like everyone's every like the entire user base is still there right like that's just nuts so it's 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 going to be interesting and i'm i'm definitely excited for it um but okay so i mean as we as we kind of wrap up here we're getting we're getting uh short on time but like what what are you excited about like i just i just kind of in, injected some excitement there but like what 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 things are, are you hopeful that people build like you guys sponsor a ton of hackathons i don't know if you'll be in tokyo but we'll be in tokyo too uh, like, like, what do you want people to build? Like, what, what do you hope the Lens community builds in terms of tooling or front ends or, or anything else? I think what often happens is um, massive products and, and communities come out of niche communities. And I think that when you're building on Lens or you're building your new thing, that you can consider that you can start from a small group of people, get a very engaged group of people, and then grow from there. Um, I don't I don't think it's also a bad idea to just copy like a traditional social network, like what Orb has done, what LensTube has done have been very successful as well. So really there, there's so much to work with there. If you think you can build a, a higher quality, more polished like product than more with more features that implements just some of the same stuff that people already know and love, that makes a lot of sense. You want to build kind of like a niche community. You can easily onboard people because people are going to be excited because that's probably the only thing that that exists for that community maybe 
and then kind of grow from there. Um, I think that AI and machine learning, there's just, it touches on every part of software development and, and you know, there's a, a lot of opportunity there. I don't think there is like, I don't think it's kind of like opposing crypto and blockchain. In, in, in my opinion, there's a lot of like synergy there, really. We're already seeing a lot of people doing cool stuff with AI um, within Lens and with the permissionless nature like of Lens, you can programmatically do really cool stuff. So um, I'm, I'm hoping to see, you know, people build some cool stuff with AI on Lens as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're actually just very broad in what we want to see, you know, and we're here to kind of support. So we're going to be at ETH Tokyo. I'm really excited to kind of like roll out the next six months of things that are going to happen on Lens. The new infrastructure, um, hoping, ho- hopefully opening up permissionless access as soon as possible, kind of seeing what happens at that point and uh, continuing to kind of support all the apps that are that are currently being built and now and in the future. Awesome. I love it. I will have to say hi in, in Tokyo. But uh as we as we wrap up, man, is there anything you wanna you wanna leave our listeners with? Is there any are there any calls to action for developers listening to this? Uh places you want to send them? Any final thoughts? Yeah. So I'm gonna list out a bunch of stuff. Check out the Discord. The Discord is linked on lens.xyz. Uh, Lens.xyz just gives you also a lot of information. There is a, a link for the apps that are built on Lens there. That way you can kind of get inspiration and see a bunch of cool stuff that's already happening there. Uh, when you're ready to start building, go to the docs. We have a lot of good uh, material there, including like a quick start guide, which will just give you a brief introduction. Using the API, you can build a full stack app in like 10 minutes, literally, just copying and pasting the code there, walk through it after that and kind of try to understand what's going on there. Um, and then from from there, you know, I would say check out some of our uh, additional tooling that's a little higher level, which would be kind of like the React hooks. And if you're a mobile developer, check out the React Native Lens UI kit. And then I would just say build like build something. Like uh, we have a lot of applications that came out of our documentation. People were just going in our docs and building something just to kind of see how it worked. And then they're like, oh, I can now add this feature. I'm add this feature. And before they knew it, they have a functioning like app that's actually useful enough that people will sign up and, and start using it. And then they launch to the app store and then they get funding and now they're kind of a business and you just never know what's going to happen. I love it. Yeah. I'll link all that stuff in our show notes and yeah, listen, Nader, it was a lot of fun to deep dive lens. I actually learned some things today that I didn't know about what you guys are building and some of the architecture there. So we really appreciate it. And yeah, we thank you for coming on. Awesome. Thank you for having me.